The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. And yes, I know the Cowboys play at 12 o'clock. But I'm a lifelong Skins fan, so I'm going to keep you guys here till 3 o'clock today. Lock the doors in the back, you know. Um, just a, another really important question, too. Um, any Green Bay Packer fans in the house today? Raise your hand real high. I'm trying to get you in trouble. All right, look at Acts chapter 9. Today, I think we come to what I think is the most important chapter in Acts. I'm not saying that just because I'm the one preaching up here, but it really is an important chapter because um, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. So the man that you know of as Paul the Apostle who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, um, he first had a former life, and that was Saul of Tarsus, and he was a persecutor of the church. I will warn you this morning that I will probably use both names, not to confuse you, but that's just the way it may go this morning. And so today, if you and I hear the name Paul the Apostle, we think church planner, pastor, encourager, writer of scripture. But in that day, if someone heard the name Saul of Tarsus, they're going to think of someone completely different than that. They're going to think of persecutor, murderer, someone who is out to get the church and any Christian he came in contact with. And so if they heard the name Saul of Tarsus, they'd be terrified in that culture. He was the leader of the persecution of the church. In fact, he would be the last person that anyone would expect to become a Christian. If you can think in today's modern times, who was the person that you would least expect to become a Christian? Fill in that blank. This was who Saul of Tarsus was um, back in the early church. In fact, a couple of years ago, I surveyed my students. I said, asked them, who do you think, who would you be most surprised to see become a Christian today? And they said, Lady Gaga. You never thought you'd see her in church, right? <clears throat> now, we know for a fact that, that her lyrics and the way she lives her life and her sensual outfits, her sensual music, we would say that her lifestyle does, she's diametrically opposed to what you and I would say we believe for the most part. And it would be surprising to see someone like her come to know Christ. But even if that happened, she still would not rise to the level of someone like Saul of Tarsus. Or maybe music's not your thing. Maybe you're more intellectual, more academic. Um, there's another man that I want to put up on the screen here. This is Richard Dawkins, a professor at Oxford University. He's written countless books on atheism. He is a, not a passive atheist. He is an aggressive atheist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. In that book, he says this quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty and unjust unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's way too many big words for a high school youth pastor. So while yes, it would be surprising to see someone like him come to know Jesus, even someone like him who has an atheist foundation even someone like him would not rise to the level of someone like Saul of Tarsus. In fact, if we're going to compare Saul of Tarsus to someone today, it would have to be someone like this. 
Paul was guilty of rounding up Christians, persecuting them, and possibly even killing some of them. And if you were to make a link between Saul of Tarsus and someone today, it would have to be someone like who is the leader of ISIS, someone who is organizing and figuring out ways they can squelch out the church. And as you know, this has been rampant in the Middle East recently, and this is the kind of person that Saul of Tarsus was. And this is really important this morning, because I want you to understand, like we have to understand who this man was before Christ changed him, right? We have to go back there for a little bit to understand what this man was saved from when Christ eventually changed him. This was Saul. He wasn't just a grunt. He wasn't just a guy persecuting the church. He was a guy who was the leader. To the early church, he was a terrorist. In fact, if you became a Christian back then, you did not want to hear Saul knocking on your door. He was not someone who just opposed Christianity Christianity socially and morally like Lady Gaga or intellectually and philosophically like Richard Dawkins. He is someone who physically opposed the church back in that time. So we learn in in Acts chapter 7 and also in chapter 8 where where Stephen is being killed, the first martyr of the church. And the text says that there's a man standing there named Saul of Tarsus giving his approval to the execution of Stephen. So look with me in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Acts 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is not acting alone. He has gained approval from the high priest in Jerusalem. He has an arrest warrant to go and arrest Christians in Damascus. And he's not just opposing those who cross his path. He is going out of his way to arrest Christians. In fact, it says he was going all the way to Damascus. Do you know how far Damascus is from Jerusalem? 135 miles on foot. How committed do you have to be to walk 135 miles on foot to your cause? Do we have any marathon runners in the room? Raise your hand. Marathon runners? A few of you. So you know how committed you have to be to run a marathon, get the little sticker for the back of your car, right? So you can be proud of yourself. And so you know how committed you have to be to go 26.2 miles. So Paul is willing to walk the equivalent of five miles marathons, six-day journey to Damascus, and then walk back. This is how committed he was to persecuting Christians in that day. Now, I want you to see something else really important about Saul after he became Paul and was converted. Um, After his conversion, scholars estimate that in 10 years of ministry after his conversion, that Paul spent, out of the 10 years, he spent 660 days of those 10 years on foot, walking, carrying the gospel with him. And they estimate that in 10 years, in those days of travel, 660 days, that he must have walked 15,500 miles. And if you do the math, that's 23 miles per day on his travel days. It's astounding. 
And we see here that God has this way of redeeming someone's work ethic. God has a way of redeeming someone's boldness and how zealous they are for one cause, and he shifts it over for the sake of the gospel. And he redeems Paul completely and totally, including his work ethic. It almost seems like God looked down and, at Saul and said, you know, Saul, I, I noticed that you're willing to walk great distances. I've got a little job for you. And so he takes Saul of Tarsus and transforms him into Paul the Apostle. I want you to also see in this, in verse 2, it says, So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women. When you read scripture, I want you to read every word and, and unpack the implication of what that means. Men or women. What that means is that Paul was willing to go into a family's home, they're seated there at dinner, and Paul's men barge in during dinner time, and they grab mom, they grab dad, they tie them both up, the kids are screaming and going crazy, and Paul pulls them out of their house and takes them off to the Sanhedrin to be put in prison, if not executed. Kids have no idea what's going on, Are mom and dad ever going to come back home? This is the kind of terror that Paul, that Saul was committed to. He was ruthless. No mercy. And I want you to see, I want you to see this because I think you have to understand who he was so that you can fully appreciate the power of God and his conversion. And I think the same thing is true for us, that for you to understand the power of God, you've got to ask yourself the question, who was I before I became a Christian? Who did I used to be? Or if you're someone who was saved at an early age, ask yourself the question, who would I be today if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in my life? You know, we live in a culture that often says, don't think about the past. The past is in the past. Think about the future. That's a good statement on some level, but On another level, I think it's important that you and I understand where we came from so that we can fully grasp and appreciate the power of God in our conversion. So we have to look back at the past because looking at the past allows us to see the power of God in our conversion. You know, as a high school pastor, a lot of my students will say things like, you know, I've got a boring testimony. My testimony is not exciting. They hear a testimony that if it's someone who shares a story about, you know, before Christ they were, you know, having sex or doing drugs or going crazy and then they come to know Christ and God changes them. And for my students, a lot of them, that's what they consider a powerful testimony. And if they were saved at four or five or six, they see it as not that powerful. I've got a boring testimony, they say. No Christian can ever say that. No Christian can ever say, I've got a boring testimony. Because to say that is to minimize the sin that God saved you from. To say that is to minimize the sin that you would be living in had he not saved you. And so no Christian can ever say they've got a boring testimony. I think this is important for you to see this because for for us to see the power of God in our lives, we have to remember who we used to be. And for us to remember the power of God in Paul's life, Saul's life, we have to remember 
who he was, Saul of Tarsus, before he became a believer in Christ. Look with me in verse 3. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. So Saul and his men are walking. A bright light flashes around them, and he's blinded. Saul hits the ground. Then he hears this voice. And the voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which sounds like a strange question, doesn't it? Because Saul is on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. So Saul could have replied, I'm not persecuting you, whoever you are. But I want you to see this. As Christ says these words to Saul, why are you persecuting me? We see a really, really important truth in this text. And and the truth is this. Christ and his church are inseparable. Christ cannot be separated from his church. Church. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. You know, some Christians say things like, I like Jesus, but not the church. There was a book about 10 years ago that came out by Dan Kimball called that title, I Like Jesus, But Not the Church. In that book, he chronicled Christians and non Christians who said, You know, I've got no issue with Christ, no issue with Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I have checked out of the church because I can't stand the church. And I can understand how they'd arrive there because Jesus is perfect. It's hard to have issue with that. The church, imperfect. We all struggle with that. I understand that. But we also have to ask the question, how is it that someone can say that? How can someone say they love Christ but not his church? That's really a strange way to be a Christian. It's a strange way to be a Christian to say that. Because Jesus calls the church his bride. Jesus and his church are inseparable. I want you to imagine for a minute, what if you had a friend that you really wanted to honor and, and impress, and so you had this friend over for dinner, and you decided to roll out everything, and you had a seven-course dinner for this person, and you called to invite them, and they called you back and said, I want to thank you for having me over for this dinner. Can I bring anything and if that friend asks you that question, you, and, you, and your response is, yeah, no worries, but there's one thing I'm going to ask you not to bring, your wife. How's that conversation going to go for you? Because we all agree that if you offend the man, you offend his wife, right? You see, we can't say we love Christ, but not his church. They're inseparable. We can't, we can't live a life as if Christ is divorced from his church, as if he is separated from his church. An attack on his church is an attack on him. And so later on in Acts, when, when Paul is telling his testimony to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 28, 26, he says it a little bit differently. In Acts 26, verse 14, he says, And when we had fallen... To the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So what does that expression mean? That's not included in this passage in Acts 9, but it's included later on in Acts 26. 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Well, in that day, they would often have a couple of oxen pulling an ox cart. And as everyone knows, oxen are often stubborn. So um, this is going to upset the animal lovers in the room. But what they would do is they would take a whip and they would whip the ox so the ox would go. But even still, sometimes oxen are stubborn, they're rebellious. So oxen, instead of going, they would actually kick up against the ox cart and refuse to go. And so the master installed a bar behind the back hooves of the oxen with spikes on it. These are called goads. So when the oxen would kick, they would hit those spikes and they would injure themselves. And they'd eventually do what the master wanted him to do. This is what it means to kick against the goats. And so the picture here is really profound because what Jesus is saying, Saul, why are you kicking against the goats? He's basically saying, Saul, when you resist me, you're really hurting yourself. When you kick up against me, when you rebel against me, who's pursuing you, you're really injuring yourself and hurting yourself as you do that. I'm sure that many of you who, maybe you're a believer now, and you can look back on your life and you can think about a time and situations and circumstances where when you're rebelling against Christ, rebelling against that pursuit of the Holy Spirit, that you can reflect back on that and understand that you are really injuring yourself and those around you. You're causing pain to yourself as you are rebelling against his pursuit of you. And so to resist him is to cause yourself pain. Look at verse 7. Acts 9, verse 7. It says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Have you ever been so traumatized that you didn't eat or drink anything for three days? The picture that we get here of Saul is that before he's a man who is on a mission, he's got his people, his group, they have bravado, they have swagger, they're on their way to Damascus to arrest Christians. In the middle of all that, he's struck with blindness, and so Paul goes from being, Saul goes from being that person with confidence and bravado and swagger to now being a blind guy being led around by his hand into Damascus. And so, his blindness, I think, here is significant because we have to ask the question, why would God blind him for three days? I mean, is God just trying to, you know, limit the destruction, inhibit him from further persecution? Is he trying to say, well, you know, if, if, Paul can't, if Saul can't see Christians, then he can't really persecute anymore, right? Or is it more significant than that? I think God blinds him for two reasons. Number one... He's trying to humble Saul. He's trying to humble him. But I also think he's trying to reveal to Saul his own spiritual blindness. He, God uses his physical condition to reveal his spiritual condition. And we see a really important point at this point in the story, that salvation always involves being healed from spiritual blindness. It's true of Saul, it's true of us. Salvation always involves us being healed from spiritual blindness. 
Every single person that has become a Christian, before you came to know Christ, you were spiritually blind before he opened up your eyes. Even if you were saved at four, five, six, seven years old. You were spiritually blind, unable to comprehend, unable to see the things of God until he opens up your eyes and allows you to see. Before we become a Christian, many of us think that we're walking in the light, but in reality we're walking in darkness. And so Saul thought he was walking in the light, but in reality he was walking in darkness. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, Saul, I'm going to make things dark for you for a while. So I can heal you of your real darkness. So I can heal you of your true blindness. And so Jesus blinds him. And you can imagine that those three days were very disorienting, confusing for Saul of Tarsus. And I think there's a profound picture there of when we come to Christ, many come to Christ expecting everything to get fixed right away. And you think you put your life in his hands and everything from that point forward just improves. And you can probably relate to this that it may not have been for three days or even three months, but salvation is often accompanied by a time of some serious confusion, serious questioning. What now, God? And you can, you can also see in the story that you can guess in the story that, that Saul, as he's blind for three days, don't you think he kind of turned inward, introspective, reflective, And so for three full days, he's got time to think. What do you think went through his mind? You've been killing and persecuting Christians. What do you think went through his mind as he had time to think for three days? Do you think he thought about all those people he persecuted? Do you think he thought about those screams of all those kids as he took the mom and the dad down to Jerusalem? Do you think maybe he thought about the martyr Stephen? Maybe he imagines, imagines Stephen being in that state as he's taking these boulders and being stoned? In fact, I want to flip back there. Look back at Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Acts seven fifty nine. This is the account of Stephen being stoned. Verse 59 says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. If you remember Christ on the cross when he died, before he died, he said the words, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Stephen's words mirrored the words of Christ as Stephen's being put to death. How amazing is this, that as boulders are being launched at him, as, as, as boulders are crushing his bones and caving in his head, that his last words for Stephen were, forgive the people who are doing this. His last words were a prayer to God, that God would not hold this sin against them. And the text says that as they stoned Stephen... Saul of Tarsus stood there giving approval. So 
The text says that Stephen said these words loudly. I'm assuming those around him could hear the words. And so we have to assume that if, if Saul is standing right there, that Saul heard that prayer, that Saul heard those words be uttered. Saul heard Stephen pray for him as Saul was, was, was approving his execution. Do you think he may have thought about that during those three days while he was blind? Wrestling with the idea that the man I watched die prayed for me, prayed for my soul, in Acts chapter 7, we see, we see Stephen pray for his murderers. In Acts chapter 9, prayer answered. The prayer gets answered. Who is someone that you have stopped praying for? Who is someone that you no longer see as within the grasp of God's grace and mercy? Who is someone you've stopped praying for? Who is someone that you see as, yeah, God, they've done too much, they've gone too far, God can't save them. I mean, even Stephen, as he's being murdered, did not see his murderers that way. As he's taking stones and bones are getting crushed, still did not think that these men are beyond the reach of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so who is, someone that you, who is someone that you think is too far gone? Who is someone that you think is beyond the reach of God's grace and his mercy? Look with me in verse 10, Acts 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. That's you. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is in Damascus, and he's already heard about Saul coming that direction. He already knows about Saul and his reputation, and he's terrified. So if you're Ananias and God's asking you to go pursue the man who's got an arrest warrant for you, are you arguing? I'm arguing, right? I'm saying things like, God, you know, why can't you just heal him? Or God, you know, can I just heal from a distance? Or, or how about I just pray for him and then you do the work, God. Like, you didn't need to see me. Leave me out of this. Look down at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I want to spend some time on verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Because we know Saul caused a lot of suffering. But he would spend the rest of his life suffering as a Christian. The hunter became the hunted. And if there's one thing we learn from Scripture, all of Scripture, is that Christians often suffer for their faith. They just do. We see it around us. We see it 
even in our own country and elsewhere. But I want to just challenge us in this one area this morning, because I think that because we live in a, for the most part, religiously free society, there's a reaction that you and I tend to have about persecution that I think is not necessarily biblical. And the reaction we normally have when we're persecuted or someone else is persecuted is two things. <clears throat> we're surprised and we're offended. We say things like, we think things like, you know, don't those people know who we are? We're Christians. Like, we're important. And we kind of have this entitlement mentality, like everything's going to go, just because you're a believer, everything should go smoothly. And we tend to make persecution the issue and focus just on the persecution. And I want you to watch this. I think I've seen evidence of this whenever... um, um, a while back, a couple years ago, when, when T- Tim Tebow was still in the NFL. I love Tebow, not bashing Tebow at all. Love Tim Tebow, great Christian man. But when he was in the NFL and he was publicly displaying his faith um, in the media, that um, he was getting scoffed at and he was being mocked by people for, that, for his faith. And then that creates this backlash where some Christians are asking questions like, well, what if he was a Muslim? Would that happen if he was a Muslim? The answer is probably not, but the point that Christians are trying to make is that this isn't fair. This isn't fair that a Christian gets this kind of treatment, but someone else may not. And so one day I'm watching this debate on ESPN. These guys are talking about, is it right for Christians to get persecuted or not, and so on. And one of the guys is Stephen A. Smith. If you know Stephen A. Smith, um, he's always rolling his eyes at somebody or yelling at somebody, getting mad at somebody. And Stephen A. Smith, on his talk show utters the only profound thing I've ever heard on ESPN in my entire life. He says this, quote, I don't understand why Christians act so surprised and offended when they're persecuted for their faith. The Bible tells us to expect this kind of thing. And I couldn't help but think that maybe Stephen A. Smith had just read in his devotional before he went to the set, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, where, he said, where it says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised when you experience persecution. I'm not at all saying this morning that we should celebrate persecution or be glad about persecution or not be grieved by it, not pray for those being persecuted, or that we should seek persecution. I'm not saying we should even seek persecution. I think some Christians think that verse says, do everything in your power so the world hates you. We're, we're not told to be a jerk for Jesus. We're just not, right? And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're persecuted. And I want you to see how Paul, when he would suffer for the gospel, how he responds to that kind of persecution. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, where it says, this is Paul writing this now when he's a Christian, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. You know, it's funny. When I read those words, I don't see words like protest, boycott. I don't see words like when persecuted, go blow up your Twitter account. When persecuted, go blow up Facebook. Let everybody know about it. Make persecution the point. This is not right. This is unjust. What the posture that Paul had when he's being persecuted is that when reviled, 
he blesses. When persecuted, he endures. When slandered, he entreats. The word entreat in that passage means to invite or to exhort. So the picture being put before us is that whenever we experience persecution of any kind, that we maintain this gospel-centered posture that says, I'm going to keep on entreating, keep on exhorting, keep on trying to persuade, keep the relationship as much as I can so I can bring that person or those people to Jesus Christ. This is the posture that Paul maintained throughout his ministry. The problem with us, I think, is that we focus only on the persecution, only on the injustice, only on the wrong, and we don't focus on how we can be a blessing in the midst of the persecution. Look down at at verse 17. Acts 9, 17, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. There's one word that I want you to focus on in this entire passage, 17 to 20, and it's the word brother. Ananias' first word out of his mouth is brother. And this is not like, hey, bro. This is brother. This is a familial term. This is a, I am seeing you as my Christian brother now. What faith Ananias must have had? What grace to, to believe in that vision so much that he said, okay, you say he's your chosen instrument, I'm going to believe you, Jesus. And, and, and you have to imagine that, that, that Saul, when, when Ananias approaches him, is probably nervous because Saul's been persecuting Christians. He's now blind for three days. Knock at the door. Hey, it's Ananias. I'm a Christian. I've got sharp objects with me, right? Like Saul's probably... Freaking out, he's nervous. He's wondering, like, what's this guy going to do to me? Revenge? And the first words out of his mouth are, Brother Saul. What a relief that must have been for Saul to hear those words. What faith and grace extended from Ananias to Saul? Some of you know my wife, Courtney, um, an amazing woman of God, great wife, great mother, and we often kind of look back on our lives and think about how our stories are a little bit different and how we came to know Christ. I came to Christ at an earlier age, and my sin struggles to this day are pride, self-righteousness, arrogance, the sins of the Pharisees. Well, the things she struggled with when she was in high school, she got kind of caught up in sort of the party crowd and started, you know, drinking. There's some drugs and that sort of thing, and so she went down that road for a while walked away from Christ, and walked into that world. And I think around the age of 20 was when she began to feel the the tug and the pull towards Christ again. She describes a time when she was at a pool um, by herself, and and she says that it felt like God just kind of descended and just started to begin to pursue her. And even that wasn't enough. She still 
kicked against the goads for a little longer. She went back into that lifestyle for a while and, and, and pursued that. But it was when she went to work at a coffee house in the town where she went to college, she met some, as she describes them, unbelievable Christians who didn't care what her story was, didn't care where she came from, and they extended Christ's grace to her. And she says she literally thought that there's no way the church would welcome her back in. She, she really did think that she'd done too much, she'd gone too far. And so these people, they played the role of Ananias for her. They welcomed her back in and walked with her through as she sort of came back to Christ at this point in her life. And so I want to encourage you this morning that God may be calling some of you to be like Ananias for someone else. God may be calling some of you to look at someone who's struggling, look at someone who wants to come back to Christ and to play this role in their life as they work out their salvation. Other people in the room, you may have thought, you know, I've done too much. I've gone too far. There's no way Christ will receive me. You think Saul ever thought that? You think Saul ever thought, there's no way that I deserve this? There's no way Christ can use me like that? I'm guessing he thought the same thing. The reality for each one of us is that we've all done too much. We've all gone too far. Every single one of us is in that state. This is the essence of grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited favor. We've all gone too far. We've all done too much. And so Saul is on his way to arrest Christians, and he gets arrested by Jesus. And he would spend the rest of his life getting arrested for Jesus. And Saul, Paul, never let persecution keep him from the work that God called him to. And he would spend the rest of his life, as he got arrested for Jesus over and over again, he would spend the rest of his life setting people free in Jesus. And I want to offer you that same kind of freedom this morning. Jesus offers you that same kind of freedom today. I want to ask you to stand with me for a moment. I'm going to have some worship here at the end for you to think and just reflect. Go ahead and stand up where you're at. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Go ahead and close your eyes as you reflect on just the work of Christ in your life. And I want to invite you this morning, if you're someone who's a believer, I want you to think and pray and worship God for what he has freed you from. Think about your life before you became a Christian. What has he freed you from? I want you to think and reflect on that and pray about that and worship God for that this morning. Maybe you're someone who's not yet a believer. And my invitation for you this morning is this. is to surrender to him today. To submit your life to him today. To no longer kick against the goats. No longer resist him. And so if that is where you're at this morning, I want you to, if you feel that you really truly want to surrender to him, confess that to him right now through prayer where you're at as we worship this morning. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for being a God who transforms us, who 
who changes us. We thank you that you're a God that sets us free from sin, from corruption, from our flesh. We thank you, God, that you're a God who transforms us ultimately one day completely. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.